initially Australia really didn't do much about it. But then Canberra started becoming worried as to whether the Chinese might open a, a military base somewhere. Vanuatu was mentioned. Welcome to Baker's Dozen, Rain's podcast series about geopolitics from Stratford. The idea of the Indo-Pacific as a single theater of competition has taken hold in Western strategic thought. Discussions often focus on the South China Sea, they focus on Taiwan, and increasingly on Australia's role with the new AUKUS and the expansion of the role of the Quad. In addition, there has been a greater attention to, for example, the Indian Ocean and India's role in this idea of a greater Indo-Pacific area. But something that's often conspicuously absent is the rest of the Pacific. Um, when we think about the, the Melanesian, the Micronesian, and the Polynesian islands, these areas stretched across the broad swath of the Western and South Pacific um, are, are really strategically important. And this was seen, of course, during World War II uh, and the island hopping as the United States was able to push itself back up um, and constrain and ultimately defeat uh, Japan. Um, today, these islands remain strategically important, even if the attention internationally is not on them in the same way that it was in the past. Today, uh, I'm speaking to Colin Chapman, a geopolitical journalist and a fellow at the Australian Institute of International Affairs. And we're going to look at some of these issues that are at play in the Pacific. Colin, thank you for joining me here today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So, Colin, both Australia, obviously, and, and with the latest um, defense paper, New Zealand are reawakening to the importance of their roles, of the roles that they play in uh, the broader Pacific, and of the strategic risks that are facing them, despite their traditionally or, or in recent history, their sort of isolated space and their ability to protect themselves from what else was going on in the world. Um, much of this has been driven by expanding Chinese activity in the Pacific Island nations as well. A as we look at this region, how do you see Australia's views of its roles and responsibilities shifting, particularly amid expanding Chinese activity, not only in Southeast Asia, but certainly in the Pacific Islands? Well, the really big shift, as you say, Roger, has been in Australia. And you remember that in the early part of the 21st century, a lot of policymakers and opinion formers were, you know, they were following the thought that some academics were arguing in Australia that Australia had to make a choice. And that choice was between the ANZUS partner, the United States, long-standing uh, defence partner, uh, strategic partner, and then China, which uh, was the main economic partner for Australia. And, um, you know, looking at China's economic growth and buying power, the Chinese were beginning to win friends in Canberra. And in fact, um, in 2015, um, Xi Jinping, the president of China, they rolled out the red carpet for him and invited him to address a joint session of the of, of Parliament in Canberra. And both he and uh, Prime Minister Morrison were talking about peace in the Pacific and great friendships and uh, and the rest of it. And you know what was happening in the in the real world of Australia was that uh, Chinese money 
was buying up property throughout the country. Um, Chinese were buying places for their kids in universities in Australia and in expensive private schools. And then, um, surprisingly, uh, a Chinese state-owned company was allowed to take a long-term lease on the strategic port of Darwin, uh, which is the closest part of Australia to the South China Sea. And many people in the White House were completely amazed at that, but it happened. And then things got worse because China launched the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank and asked Australia to be a partner. And in fact, it became the sixth largest shareholder with Canberra putting up more than a billion dollars in equity for this. Um, Go on from that, and then we had the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative right across Asia, with the new infrastructure being built between Beijing and Turkey, and then on to Europe, and links down to a port on the Indian Ocean in Pakistan, and the whole of Asia except for Japan and uh, Taiwan bought into this. So... Um, you know, everyone was everyone was pro-China. And then, of course, things changed, as we know. And uh, the war of words between China and, um, and, and Canberra took off. And um, uh, we reverted very, very rapidly to the situation that had existed when John Howard had been prime minister, when he was referred to as the first deputy sheriff of the United States. Uh, in the Pacific, and um, that's that's where we are now. And the Pacific has totally changed. The Pacific is different, right? Yeah, I remember the um, the, the the Howard Doctrine and the and the the real strategic focus that was going on at that time, and the anticipation early on that this was going to be the change in the direction of Australia, and it was reasserting itself. And then, of course, with the United States pulled over um, into South and, and West Asia post 9-11. Um, a lot of everything else just sort of snuck to the side. And, and clearly Australia, um, as you've noted, kind of moved into that area of, of, I guess, accepting the Chinese economic benefits while downplaying any of the strategic risks or challenges. And New Zealand as well, obviously, was doing the same thing. And and I think the 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 bit of a surprise coming out of New Zealand recently has been, of course, this latest defense paper that seems to really raise up China again as saying uh, China is, it doesn't say specifically, but it sort of hints China is a strategic threat and New Zealand can no longer feel uh, that it can be out of everything, that it's out of the way. And so there does seem to be this sense of pressure pushing down on both New Zealand and Australia where in the past they thought they could sort of ignore their way out of what was happening in the rest of Asia on the strategic front. Well, that's right. Um, uh, and, and of course, the China issue is the big issue in the Pacific, because um, for, for the, initially Australia really didn't do much about it, didn't worry about it, just thought it was something that went on. OK, the Chinese are opening a few Chinese stores and selling stuff off cheap. Um, but then it grew and grew and grew, and then Canberra started becoming worried as to whether the Chinese might open a, a military base somewhere. Vanuatu was mentioned as a possibility, 
And uh, the key thing in that defence paper you mentioned from Wellington um, was also um, that very, very fear. The New Zealanders mentioned that um, they'd noticed that alongside Chinese communities developing in many Pacific islands, uh, growing up alongside them had been paramilitaries which were supporting China. Um, so that's where the alarm bells started ringing. Right. So, so as we look at this, you know, if we think about it from a from a geographic perspective, all right, um, New Zealand and Australia sit behind sort of a protective shield. Um, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, um, the 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 Melanesian states. So um, Fiji, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, of course, that that you're talking about. Uh, New Caledonia, which had had recently. Uh, in a, in a bit of a contested uh, 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 vote, decided to stay French. Um, but that, that shield has been there. Canberra has had very mixed relations with these countries over the year, though, um, at times intervening during political crises, at times perhaps in political competition or in political crises with these countries. How do we see Australia balancing its need for more proactive relations in the region with the risk of perhaps being seen either as a U.S. deputy or as another um, imperial power pushing itself on uh, these smaller states, particularly the, the, the Melanesian states, but also, for example, um, what's going on in, in Australian-Indonesian relations, because Indonesia obviously is a pretty powerful force in and of itself, uh, particularly in the ASEAN region. Well, it doesn't want to be an imperial power. I mean, though, of course, a lot of uh, not a few people in Australia, particularly left wing academics, uh, continue to paint that picture. Um, that's exactly what they say is going on. Um, but what really has happened is that uh, Morrison has developed very much as a nationalist. Um, he picked up that trait when he was great pals with Donald Trump. Uh, you may remember, and um, he comes back and now he talks continually about um, putting Australia first. <laughs> where, where, where did we first hear that? Uh, uh, in your country, I think. Um, but actually, he is not um, in that mode when it comes to the Pacific. In fact, uh, he likes to call the Pacific, a family, part of the, he likes to think of Australia as part of the uh, Pacific family, which is a bit paternalistic, of course. Um, and on his way to and from um, Europe for, first of all, G20 and then COP26 lately, he made a point of entering discussions with a lot of um, Pacific leaders um, he supports the Pacific leaders in their demand for more money, um, which basically didn't quite get through COP26 because um, uh, the Pacific, he says, the leaders there need more money to be able to adapt to the technology that they're going to need to um, support climate change. Um, but he is supporting them. For example, Australia has... Um, provided a billion Australian dollars, that's about 360 um, American dollars by my calculation, um, to fight um, rising sea temperatures in the Pacific. Um, and there's also a lot of other things going on. Um, he has started a 
um, emissions trading scheme with Fiji. Uh, it's the first emissions trading scheme that Fiji has signed up to. And um, there's also um, lots of money going from the Australia-Indonesia Institute to people-to-people um, operations in the world's fourth largest economy. And um, none of this could really be called imperial. Now, um, the Solomon thing is very interesting because you will know that um, Australia intervened very recently in the Solomon Islands following a call from the Prime Minister to Canberra for help with um, uh, ethnic rivalries getting out of control in Honiaru, where some government buildings are actually burnt down. They include a big government office, a bank, and uh, and a high school. And um, Morrison responded immediately to this. Um, within 24 hours, a posse of um, Australian um, federal police were in a plane on the way um, to to the Solomon Islands to restore law and order. And very shortly after that, another 50 were in another plane to um, guard key infrastructure. Um, but this is a very interesting development because this is based on an agreement in, in, um, in 2017 um, between Australia and the Solomons, whereby Australia would intervene in such a way um, and it's a unique agreement. There's no other agreement between any other country in the Pacific. Um, and there's a very strict rule attached to it, and that is that um, Australia will not interfere in any way in the, po- in the politics that might, res- might be involved in any of these clashes. And, of course, there's deep politics involved in all of these clashes. Right. Um, it, it, but it, it's, a, it's a very neat way in which Australia can act as the, um, as, as, as the first deputy sheriff without actually um, um, sounding or being imperial. Well, and in this case, it becomes really interesting in the Solomon Islands because, of course, the ethnic conflict is between those in Guadalcanal and those in Malaysia. And, of course, um, the Solomon Islands is, is have recently switched, you know, in the last few years, switched recognition from Taiwan to mainland China. And it's those on Guadalcanal who supported that shift in recognition. Those on Malaysia are the ones who supported the continued relationship with Taiwan. And that's part of the stress that we see. So interestingly, the Australians, to maintain a level of stability and fulfill their role, intervened on behalf of, if we want to way oversimplify it, intervened on behalf of the pro-Chinese forces, despite the fact that we see in the broader strategic context the, the, the Australians are now pushing back against China. And this is, this is a, a dynamic that seems to be at play. China has been able to exploit or manipulate um, the internal stresses within these different Pacific Island nations where they have uh, ethnic competition. We've seen it as far up into, um, we, we've seen it actually in Okinawa. Um, the Chinese have tried to play games in in uh, in uh, U.S. territories in the Pacific as well by exploiting these internal uh, aspects. So, so it's interesting as we look at the the strategic context here. To maintain stability, Australia intervenes, but it does so sort of in a way that angered the forces that the U.S. is actually helping financially, um, and the Australians would like to help. 
who want to push back against Chinese encroachment. Right. It's exactly what's happening. And that is happening right throughout the whole of of um of 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 um of the Pacific. And and then of course you have the relationship with Jakarta, which is um become very interesting because Australia uh, is very, very keen on closer economic relations with Jakarta and with Indonesia generally. It wants a free trade agreement. Um the ABAR, which is the uh, Bureau of Agricultural Economics in Canberra, has just completed a study of um, food requirements in Indonesia over the next 50 years and finds out or says that in 50 years time, Indonesia will need 400% more food than it's got at the moment. And obviously, Australia would like to fill the void there because... Um, Australia's got plenty of cattle, plenty of beef, plenty of dairy, plenty of everything, really. It could supply all of Indonesia's uh, short-term needs in the long term, although the prices might be a bit too expensive for Jakarta. Uh, but um, Jakarta is um, pushing back on that a bit because um, it, it, it's always wanted to be self-sufficient, not too dependent on anyone. And then there's a bigger issue with Indonesia, and that is that um, President Vidodo is very, very annoyed about um, the whole AUKUS deal, the submarine deal, and particularly about the Quad, which uh, he says, you know, is really anathema to the region. So much so that Indonesia in October asked the... Um, asked for a strategic review of the non-proliferation treaty um, as to whether Australia might be in breach of it by because it's not a nuclear power um, having having nuclear powered submarines now I think that might be splitting hairs but nonetheless this review is taking place and more to the point the Australian Broadcasting Commission has reported that um, uh, President um, Vidodo um, at the most recent ASEAN summit um, really laid into Morrison um, time and time again in a very strident and strong manner about about um, AUKUS and said it's wrong and he he believes that countries like Australia should be um, like ASEAN itself sort of um, fairly neutral and um of course um in comes france free of um any obligations to australia now and having got new caledonia still within its um remit so to speak with president macron saying that he wants um france to be a neutral neutral in the pacific too and really supporting the Indonesian view. And obviously, France has got a lot of surplus food that he would like to um, sell to Jakarta. Right, yes. I mean, as we look at Indonesia, obviously this ASEAN concept, trying to stay neutral in the face of rising U.S.-China competition. You know, the quad moves right through Indonesian waters. AUKUS and the Australians are going to move right through past Indonesia. So this puts them in the center, and their perception is it forces them it may try to force them to choose sides, and they obviously don't want to do that. And I think there's also this lingering stress 
between Australia and and Indonesia. You know, if we go back 20 years, it was the, the Timor independence movement, right? And of course, Australia effectively intervened um, on the side of Timor. Um, then there were all sorts of issues over gas and, and splitting gas fields. But that that certainly held, um, you know, was, was a bit of a stress in that relationship there. So, so it does seem that, you know, as, as Australia looks to re, re-engage in the region, there are a lot of um, historical components and structural components that are going to challenge their ability to do this in a, in a relatively easy way or a way that everybody welcomes them with open arms. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So, so if we step back for a moment and move back over into the Pacific, right, when we think about World War II, you know, in the Pacific Islands, you know, you go back even further, the Pacific Islands were important because they were coaling stations for trans-Pacific trade. And then, you know, and, and I'm not, uh, uh, we're being kind of crude here and saying important. We're talking about important in this global sense. Obviously, every place is important to the people who live there. But, but in that strategic sense, they were important as coaling stations. Then in World War II, you know, it was the distance of operational aircraft, right? So the island hopping campaign was about grabbing airfields so that you could continue to push air power. Um, obviously, now maritime power, air power, space, these are, these are much more distant um, than they, the, and, and the range is much greater than it used to be. So how do we think about the strategic significance of Pacific Islands these days, whether it's in things like the maritime territory that they control under uh, UNCLOS, the size of their EEZs, or even competition over, say, um, communications and transportation. Um, and, and lately, we've been seeing a lot of competition over submarine cables even. But what are some of the strategic importance of these islands to the bigger powers and to the region? Well, these are very important questions, Roger. And um, for me, the three points stand out, and that is um, sea lanes, um, trade and resources, and international rivalry. Those three points are run across everything. And if you look at the geography, um, the you know the two straits that are on the western end of the Pacific, the Straits, uh, Straits of Malacca and Lombok, they're sentinels to the Western Pacific. And um, through uh, the Malacca Straits, 40% of uh, world trade passes, by my latest calculation, which is huge when you think of it. That's, that's all that trade going to China, from China, going to Japan, um, also, you've got uh, something like um, um, 15 million barrels a day of oil going through the Malacca Strait. And then, then there's the Lombok Strait, which is um, the, the strait that's between Indonesia and Australia itself, which is also very important and is a very big choke point. And there are suggestions that um, Australia is very keen for Australia, for the United States to have a naval base in northwestern Australia at Exmouth. And, of course, the purpose of that would be uh, if the Chinese became even more aggressive than they have been already in the South China Sea and the United States felt the need to block the access to those important sea lanes for China, then 
um, running running something, running the navy out of Exmouth would be a very good thing. So that's the, their key strategic places, um, without without a doubt. And then, um, secondly, another key point is that the um, Pacific, the South Pacific, is the main sea lane, really, to Antarctica. And um, Antarctica is almost a separate subject, I think, with so many issues involved with it. But um, uh, the Chinese and the Americans are... Uh, at odds with the trustees of Antarctica, which include Australia, who is the most significant trustee, having access to the greatest amount of land in this um, polar subpolar region, and um, and and there's only really one one main route into that, and that's through the Pacific. And then I would I would add, you know, as as I'm looking at these places, um, you know. Uh, listening posts, satellite um, tracking facilities. This is something that China has been doing in 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 the Pacific Islands, uh, as well as the key routes. When you think about connecting um, the United States to Australia, right? I mean, you move through these South Pacific Islands uh, states, and then finally, as you had mentioned earlier, resources. Right? Um, I think if we look at the these states, the the potential. Um, maritime protein resources, which we already see countries, um, you know, using up resources in places like the South China Sea. We see expanding Chinese fishing uh, fleets off the coast of the Americas, um, trying to reach uh, with climate change, their shift in the location of fish stock. So traditional fishing grounds are now moving. So people are looking for that. Down the road, there's the question of subsea mineral resources. You know, even if we're not talking about um, uh, uh, oil and natural gas hydrocarbons to be able to do an energy transition there are other minerals that you're going to need and there's been a lot of exploration of the potential for feasible exploitation of mineral resources on the seabed uh, so those become important and then finally I think again the, t- the idea of telecommunications cables and we've seen the Australians recently put up money to make sure that that an Australian company buys a a big telecommunications company that that manages cables through the South Pacific, um, as well as the Australians, the Americans, I think the Japanese getting together to fund cables going in that traditionally would have been funded by the Chinese because there's a concern of control over the flow of information and access to information. So even if these aren't aren't the routes for aircraft, they're certainly the routes for information now. Yeah, well, part of that, of course, is to keep Hawaii um, out of um, the South Pacific Islands as far as possible, which they haven't totally succeeded with, but that was one of the goals, and that was something where clearly the Australians were working with the Americans. Um, But you're quite right about the Antarctic and um, the demand for minerals, which is at its early stages, but the fishing issue is very, very important because the Chinese are building huge ships um, for use down there. And then uh, the Chinese also, along with the Russians, have the largest number of icebreakers um, in in the waters that give access uh, to to Antarctica. 
uh, where, of course, the ice cap is melting uh, faster than it's ever done. So um, th this, this is something which is brewing and will become much more important. And the real issue there, too, is whether trustees of, um, of the Antarctic uh, Treaty, which include Australia, have been rather negligent in the way they look after um, the, the, the trust that's placed in them. For example, um, both uh, China and the United States have bases in Australian Antarctic territory. Now, they're not allowed to be military bases, but um, um, they're supposed to be checked regularly. And um, the number of checks that have taken place at either of these bases seems absolutely minimal. And in case of the Chinese, I don't think it's happened at all. Right. It's it, it's really um, I think this is this is one of the important points that comes out. And we'll have to come back and talk about Antarctica at another time. But but how the how the idea of the Pacific Islands, which we think of as sandy and palm tree and warm and then Antarctica, which is cold and ice covered, are intimately linked um, because of key maritime routes, because of this broader uh, element of strategic competition, because of competition over resources. And that that that's a. Uh, you know, kind of a uh, different way of looking at things. We can't look at these different regions in isolation from one another. Um, you know, as we as we look forward, then, um, you know, with with Australia now expanding through the AUKUS, taking a greater role in Quad, like we talked about, New Zealand's defense paper reawakening to the concerns that they have. Um, France stepping back into the Pacific. Uh, we've seen the Germans flirting with reaching into the Pacific. Obviously, the U.S. is there. Um, what are the what are the ways that we can we can expect some of these local, medium and big powers like Australia, like New Zealand, to adjust their behavior or their actions um, in this Pacific region over the next few years? And and are there still challenges that they're going to be facing as they try to reengage and and expand their operations? Well, I think there are. I think. Um... Uh, one of the, um, the 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 big points really is um, uh, is that is that um, a lot of people in Australia, in particular, are putting forward the idea that the Pacific um, Islands Forum, which um, which which is a forum, but it's fairly bureaucratic and very slow to act, by the way, and it is the reason why that deal with the Solomon Islands that Australia struck is in place, because the Pacific Islands used to be the, the place where um, these kind of things were resolved, and they were so slow in actually taking action that um, the Solomon Islands decided that they better go directly to Australia and see if they could find a way of um, sorting that out. That's just by the by. But to come back to, to your point, um, both both Australia and New Zealand um, want to be more proactive um, in in the Pacific. There's no doubt about it. They, they you know, they, they still talk about um, um, moving more to the Pacific. But the trouble is, they're not quite sure how to do it. Um, some Australian um, 
academics particularly, but others, are arguing that the Pacific Islands Forum should be converted to a Pacific Islands community. And they've put forward a model based on the European model, uh, whereby there would be a council of ministers, of chief ministers, and also ministers for each sector, like energy and fisheries and all the rest of it. And then after that would be a Pacific Islands Council, rather like the um, European Parliament. Well, it's just hard to see that working in that region. It's just just not going to happen. And other people think that uh, what needs to happen is for a better dialogue to take place between the politicians of uh, Australia and New Zealand and Germany and anywhere, and France and the Pacific Islanders, um, with more listening going on. And and there's a recent book which um, you might want to dip into, um, which has just been published by the um, deputy leader of the Australian Labour Party, who is also the deputy leader of the opposition. It uh, is is called um, Tides That Bind Australia to the Pacific, and it's by um, uh, Richard Marles. And um, he, he, he comes up with one key quote in it. If we are in the Pacific because we don't want China to be there, then we will get it all wrong, he says. And I think those are very wise words. Yeah, there needs to be a strategic intent rather than just a counter to something else. Exactly. And I think that's the, challenge, that's the challenge we've seen. I mean, if we were to take this wider, that's the challenge we've seen with the US and the European response to Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah. Rather than rather than having a, a proactive policy, it seems to be a responsive policy. Well, we don't want them. Um, and this is this is where China seem, you know, has the the cash resources and the willingness to do things. And until um, these other countries find uh, goals rather than just counter goals, it's very difficult for them to make the case. And they're going to run into these challenges. You could you could take the same analogy to the current issue between. Russia and the United States over Ukraine. You know, um, President Putin is playing a clever hand because he's saying, um, well, okay, so um, you agree that NATO will not extend ever into Ukraine and I will withdraw my troops and everything will be happy forever and now. And um, the, the Americans can't agree to that. On the other hand, it's the obvious solution to the problem. Right. So so I know we could take this and, and go on forever, and it's great talking with you again, Colin. Um, and, and I love that we have taken our discussion of the Pacific and moved it all the way to Ukraine and the Antarctic and up to Japan and all over the place. And I think that that, that reinforces just how important um, this region is and, and central it is, but also how interconnected things are. And so um, I really want to thank you, Colin, for being here with me today. Colin Chapman is a fellow of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The Pacific Island strategic position remains geopolitically important, especially amid intensifying U.S.-China competition. Stay ahead of developments in the region. Subscribe to Worldview today. Go to stratfor.com for a special offer through December 2021. That's stratfor.com. I'm Roger Baker, and thank you for listening.